from 2004 to 2014 in several developed countries around the world with mature transport systems, road traffic stopped growing for 10 years. And it's not meant to do that. The graphs show us that it always grows and so we assume it will carry on growing and our forecasts say as much and we therefore provide for that prediction. And here we found that road traffic had stopped at least temporarily growing, which moved on to the question of why was that happening? Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. In this episode, we are speaking to Glenn Lyons, Professor of Future Mobility from the University of the West of England. He's the voice you heard just now. Glenn has previously been seconded to the Department for Transport, Chair of the Transport Planning Society, Chair of Bristol City Council's Best Value Review of Integrated Transport, and a trustee of the London Transport Museum. He was even seconded to the New Zealand Ministry of Transport. He has been Professor of Transport and Society at UWE Bristol since 2002, and his current position is sponsored by Mott MacDonald. He spends a lot of time thinking about the future of mobility, not a straightforward problem. Because even in recent years, things have been changing. Those 10 years of stability in road traffic started to open up a whole range of areas to study, which led to new insights including how young people's license holding has been changing. So in the UK, in England particularly, just to give you a statistic, in 1997, 48% of 17 to 20 year olds had a driving license. Fast forward 20 years to 2017, and that had dropped to 29%. So from nearly a half to less than a third. So when you're then talking about you know, the future of mobility and assuming everyone will be choosing to drive a car, that's no longer as well-founded as it once was. And similarly, in that 20-year period, commuting trip rates and shopping trips dropped by a fifth as digital and online methods began to affect our habits and our work. The changes are coincident with the maturation of the World Wide Web, Tim Berners-Lee's epoch-defining invention of 1989. To the point now where it's, of course, it's quite easy to, to set up a video call and to pull in lots of different people and it can be recorded, it can be cut up and used afterwards, we can share documents, we can do our shopping, we can meet our friends down the virtual pub even if we want, you know, it's so so much has been changing and then when Covid arrived that was really just a further, sh- literally a shock to an already changing system. So we're in a a real state of flux at the moment, which is why there's so much of a sense of deep uncertainty, but also excitement about possibility, because if, if it's all change, it's not what it always once was, how can we shape it into something that really seems more appealing for our futures? In this episode, we'll learn about the new ways of thinking about journeys. We'll learn about mobility as a service, and we'll learn about the benefits of a vision-led approach to planning for the future. But now, a message from the first of this episode's two sponsors. Support for this episode comes from MapleSoft. Before you can build a machine, you need a prototype. With MapleSim Advanced Simulation Software from MapleSoft, the prototype can start earlier thanks to the power of a digital model. 
Engineers using MapleSim can speed up the selection and testing of initial concepts. You can try out more ideas in less time, getting you to market faster. MapleSim offers amazing flexibility to quickly build a multi-domain model of your entire system in one place. By tracking down design flaws between different domains, you can prevent problems from occurring in the first place. In MapleSim, the high-fidelity, computationally efficient model lets the design engineer right-size the server drives, motors and gearboxes, and even connect into PLC controller testbeds for sensitivity analysis and what-if scenarios. If you want to speed up your machine building and testing, contact MapleSoft for a free trial of the MapleSim simulation software. Visit their website at maplesim.com. And now, back to the episode. And the first thing to understand is this rather broad term, future mobility. And in some ways you could say, well, that, that sounds like transport, future transport planning itself. But it, I think the term really has come about, particularly in this period over the last few years, where we're really seeing the effects of a collision and merging of the digital age and the motor age. So a few years back, there was a lot of excitement about the idea we were going to be having autonomous vehicles. Everything was going to be driverless cars. And then new excitement arrived around this concept of mobility as a service. And of course, now we've got the prospect of flying cars, but we've also got e-scooters. Um, but young people aren't driving cars as much as they used to anymore with their driving licenses. So there's this just this real sense that having been in a rather sleepy world you might say where we were getting more of the same year after year decade after decade it was really the age of the motor car um, fundamentally that was all starting to, to destabilize with these new exciting developments unheard of changes in behavior so that notion of looking to the future of mobility and frankly why mobility rather than the future of transport it's a little bit whimsical the department for transport actually adopted the term future mobility and then went backwards and said they want to go back to future transport because people didn't seem to be getting what mobility really meant. People sometimes think low floor buses or wheelchair ramps. But it is more about mechanised transport not being the only way to achieve the reasons to travel, at least not anymore. We live in what Glenn calls a triple access system, that is, a world in which it is possible to have three routes to achieve your reason for needing to move. We plan for the future of transport in the transport sector, but the world we live in isn't just a transport system. The things we need in our everyday life, the things we're trying to access, people, goods, jobs, services, opportunities. Yes, we can access that through transport, but we also access it through digital connectivity increasingly, uh, as well as spatial proximity if you have good land use planning. And so all three of those are working together in our lives. The fundamental notion of access, as in being able to reach things that we need. Another important term that often comes up is mobility as a service. It's existed for the better part of a decade now and follows in the footsteps of things like software as a service. This notion that you don't necessarily buy a specific thing and own it, but you have access to it when you need it. And so... The concept of mobility as a service, I interpret as the mobility system beyond the private car. In, in other words, I don't own um, a vehicle to move around in necessarily. I have access to 
different modes of transport when I need them. And the particular notion of mobility as a service is that that's all packaged up in a very neat way, as it might be for your mobile phone contract, where conceivably you could pay so much per month and that would give you unlimited access through your app to whether it's ride hailing like Uber or whether it's e-bikes or scooters or going on the bus or the train. It's all wrapped together to make it as convenient as possible as an alternative to the car. With the potential flexibility available to the future mobility sector, Glenn and his colleagues are advocating for a more vision-led approach to planning, what they call decide and provide. Which is in contrast to the very traditional approach in transport planning of predict and provide. So predict and provide, shorthand for what we tend to do or have done is predict how much road traffic there'll be in future if we don't do anything. And then we say, my goodness, we can't allow that to happen. So we must provide more infrastructure and capacity to ensure we're not facing gridlock. And so we have that forecast led approach. Whereas what we're suggesting now is you need a vision-led approach where you decide on the future you want or you believe is preferable and then work out charting a course towards that future. And I guess at the top of my list has to be decarbonizing, because all bets are off if we simply keep deflecting that and kicking the can down the road, as it were, to next year, next decade. And the, the challenge then becomes how do we decarbonize the transport system as well as the economy, but doing so in a way that improves people's lives and creates better well-being, a more inclusive society. So if we simply electrify the entire vehicle fleet and have an uncoordinated approach to providing charging stations, we run the risk of disrupting pedestrians and focusing the entire future mobility space around cars. But do we get to rip out all of the roads? Is that the master plan? Glenn repeats his caution against trying to predict the future. There are examples, of course, where just that has happened. You know, roads are returned to green space or to, to rivers or watercourses in cities. It's not unheard of. But one of the challenges, again, is resisting predicting the future, um, something I really try hard not to fall into the trap of doing. We can certainly have an, a future we aspire to, to, to achieve and we might all have very different ones but if you're planning with the mentality of this is going to happen we must be ready for it uh, you almost have a self-fulfilling prophecy so for me the, the vision the master plan as you put it really starts with what types of outcomes do we want what would be our measures of of a successful future for our city or our region or our country in both social and transport terms and then, of course, you can ask the question, well, what are the means to that end? And into the bargain, how do we avoid unintended consequences that come back to haunt us? So in light of the gathering currently underway in Glasgow, and if you're unfamiliar, check out our COP26 mini-series that was broadcast last week. It's from episodes 132 to 135. In light of that gathering, let us take decarbonisation as this imperative. The question then is, how might we decarbonise in a way that can create positive change rather than simply this sense of restriction and compromise? And this is where I would come back to access. And I'd be saying that we have this 
this wonderful triple access system that we we live in. And in fact, thank goodness we have it because during the pandemic, we relied on it heavily. When we were told not to travel by public transport and we couldn't go to work, many of us turned to digital connectivity as an alternative, Zoom calls, Microsoft Teams meetings. But we also turned to our neighbourhoods and living local and acting global, as the phrase goes. Uh, And so the way I'd be approaching decarbonisation is to say, when we travel, we obviously need to use technology, as we are doing, to remove the tailpipe emissions from all types of vehicles. But we need to find those opportunities where we travel less and still have the access, but access through spatial proximity and walking and cycling. And that's about good good urban design and and agglomeration. But also recognising other situations where we can quite plainly see digital connectivity would be enough. I had a wonderful experience just on Friday last week. I was invited, um, all expenses paid trip to Milan, cultural, the, the, the fashion capital of Europe to present in this fantastic new digital culture centre building. Uh, And my reaction post-COVID was, and with the climate crisis facing this, was I I really don't think I can justify jumping on a plane to go to Milan, much as though it sounds like a wonderful privilege. Um, But I'd be delighted to present sat here at home, you know, in my makeshift office. And I had this wonderful experience where they had a gathered audience in Milan in this very glitzy building, and there was my larger than life image being beamed you know, onto, onto the, the platform. And I was interacting with people, said goodbye, switched off and went in to see my family um, and had an end of week, you know, glass of beer. And it, it, so it's, you can see how we can still have that sense of good, good lived experience without doing what we've always done because we've assumed that's you know, the only route to, to fulfilling our needs. If multiple travel options are viable, you can more easily see people switching from one mode to the other. Digital adoption can actually have an impact on the proportion of people using cars or trains. So for the sake of argument, if most of those people currently on the train find themselves working from home and having business meetings online, that frees up rail capacity. And for those poor souls who still find themselves driving on strategic road network, they may now, with the right price signals, think, well, the railway's not as crowded as it used to be, so I'm going to use the rail a bit more. And so you, what you end up doing is seeing a sort of trickle-down effect from digital, first of all, perhaps affecting rail, but then rail's effect is drawing people from road um, and so on. So it's a far more complex picture, and a change in behaviour can have a magnified effect on the overall system that's hard to predict. But with digital pushing further into our society, our way of living and working is very different to what it was 30 years ago. We might yet see even more surreal changes. But yes, the the big crunch point now is whether digital is becoming more and more convenient and user-friendly to the point where it even starts to replace the notions of social interaction that we have from those face-to-face meetings. You know, if we get to a point where Google can emulate the um, the water cooler or the let's have a beer down the pub afterwards, Alex, you know, after that intense conference call session, once that's emulated, you start to wonder what's left for the reason you're trundling up the country on a train or flying across the world in a plane. In other words, 
The Matrix is coming. Well, quite. You know, um, I do often tweet with the hashtag The Matrix is coming, not because I quite literally believe we'll all be used as human batteries. But, you know, in the broadest sense, compared to 30 years ago, I mean, just think about the the incredible virtual world that the younger generations now li live in, where they're in gaming environments with children or people of their peer group all over the world. And fast forward another decade of that, or another two decades, and I think there'll be more change we couldn't even have imagined compared to the sort of change we try tend to get excited about in transport, which always underwhelms and underdelivers in the end. The changing world presents both challenges and uncertainty for decision makers, which we will come to in a moment. But first a message from the second of this episode's sponsors. Support for this episode came from Groundforce. Your solution, created by Groundforce Shawco, is an interactive standard solutions design tool created to offer easy access to standard solutions, saving time and effort to receive a temporary works design. Built by the award-winning team at Groundforce, this easy-to-use program puts our standard solutions right at your fingertips. Access is available 24-7 on mobile devices and desktops directly from the Groundforce website. All designs created are made available in the Groundforce technical library. Find your solution today on the Groundforce website. That's at www.vpgroundforce.com. And now back to the episode. It's not straightforward to come to a decision maker and say, we can't tell you what the future is going to look like and give you a benefit cost ratio to two decimal places. What we can tell you with confidence is it's deeply uncertain. I mean, quite, quite. And then the, the last thing the politician wants to do is say, super, I'll go and tell uh, my cabinet and I'll go and tell the electorate that we're confident in the uncertainty about the future. But what, of course, we're now working to do is make sure that that communication is presented in a clear and simple enough way that it becomes more compelling and indeed enabling. That is rather than the disabling connotation in uncertainty. You know, it's it's that opportunity. So, for example, the UK Department for Transport now is introducing a set of what it calls common analytical scenarios. And for particularly for major investment schemes, it's no longer enough for the scheme promoter to take a most likely future, a most likely do nothing future, and then work out the return on investment of doing something with this scheme, because that's only a single do nothing future, which we don't have confidence in anymore. So the common analytical scenarios are a set of scenarios of very different futures. And the question for the promoter is, what happens in each of those futures if you try and introduce your scheme? And if you can convince me that we're going to get a good return on investment, um, good value for money in each of those futures, that start, starts to sound like a good bet to me. I'm, I'm able to be confident in the face of uncertainty. But if, on the other hand, you come back and say, it really didn't perform so well in two of those futures, because if, if the world goes that way and people really don't love cars as much in the future as they used to, we're going to have, or future politicians are going to have some egg on their face because the demand just won't be there. And so it's about making more robust decisions. But 
doing so in a way that's not overwhelming the decision maker with the sort of complexity of the problem space. It is about being approximately right rather than precisely wrong. Doesn't it make sense that we are a little bit more agile about our analysis across a broader array of what-ifs, as you, as you point out, and then just see how things are playing out in these different settings, because it gives us a, a broader understanding of what we're up against in the changing world. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound Engineering by Ross McPherson, Series Supervision by John Young, and our own What If Scenario is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode sponsors Maplesoft and Groundforce. Thanks also to Mott MacDonald and the University of the West of England. Thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn.